This episode is brought to you by our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, and accessible. They are also now fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, which is cbtseminary.org. Again, that is cbtseminary.org. The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Jimmy Johnson here, and we want to welcome back Brandon Adams on the podcast for a second time. So, welcome back to the Covenant Podcast, Brandon. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. And to hear more about Brandon, I I suggest that you go back to the previous episode he was on that is titled 1689 Federalism. Today we're going to talk about one kingdom versus two kingdom theology, what exactly those things mean and how they apply to how the church interacts with culture and what the mission of the church is. So the first question we have for you, Brandon, is what is one kingdom theology? So it's a little hard to... to no, for sure. There aren't a whole lot of people who necessarily use that terminology from, from my reading, from, from my studies. Uh, more people would be prone to use, you know, the two kingdom doctrine or two kingdom theology label, but I don't hear a lot of people uh, calling themselves, you know, I, I hold to the one kingdom doctrine. Um, but there may be some out there. I, I think what most people have in mind uh, is perhaps... Um, the idea that our redemption in Christ and the the kingdom of Christ is taking us back to uh, the beginning of creation where Adam was. And uh, through redemption, through the work of the Spirit, God has enabled us to successfully carry out the task where, where Adam failed. Um, not, not to earn eternal life, but... Uh, but to fulfill this this cultural mandate that Adam failed to do when he was in the garden, um, God gave Adam the uh, task to fill the earth and multiply and subdue the earth. And ultimately, he failed to do that task because he did not obey the law perfectly. Uh, and through redemption in Christ, we are restored to uh, the original purpose of creation, which was to glorify God through uh, through obedience in this this cultural mandate. So uh, one kingdom theology, if we want to give it that label, tends to be this idea that uh, the goal of the church is to um, carry out Adam's task with, with a holy purpose such that the kingdom of Christ is established here on earth in the cultural endeavors and the, the dominion mandate to subdue the earth. Um, it, John Frame is a name that, that often comes to mind. I, I have seen that specifically referenced with, with his theology. So uh, in, a different, in addition to that general outlook, um, one kingdom theology might also be associated with the idea that uh, Scripture applies to all of life, you know, not just life in the church, not just our spiritual life, but to all of our cultural endeavors. Um, so that could be what some people have in mind by one kingdom theology. It, uh, at the end of the day, you want to make sure that you're careful to um, to ask somebody, you know, if if they hold to that label or uh, or not. Ask them to define their own terms, explain where they're coming from, because as we'll see in this uh, this episode here, this is a very very complicated topic. Um, how Christ relates to culture. It's it's a top it's it's a difficult topic that's been discussed and and argued about for a very long time. So we don't want to reduce it to simply you know one kingdom versus two kingdom. Uh, it's much more nuanced than that. So I would just say make sure you allow each person to to fully define their own terms and their own perspective. 
Mm. Well, with that said, what would you say two kingdom theology is? Let me, uh, sorry, before I, I jump into that, I forgot I have a couple of quotes here that might um, might help with the, with the one kingdom theology perspective. Uh, here's a couple of quotes that I read recently from somebody who na- named uh, P. Andrew Sandlin. Uh, <clears throat> he has an article called The Eschatological Arc of Christian Apologetics. And he says, uh, this is what God is doing in the earth. He is restoring and enhancing creation. What man lost in the Garden of Eden. The consummate kingdom will come in its fullness when the new Jerusalem descends to the resurrected earth in which both God and man will live eternally. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. This is the kingdom populated by the blood-bought, the present deputies of the cultural mandate, whom God intended all along to be his people overspreading the globe and cultivating it for his glory. They will be victorious in this task. And then the Lord returns and the internal state on earth begins. And then one more quote from him. Uh, He says, uh, another article called Reclaiming Culture is Gospel Ministry. He says, God didn't abandon his cultural plan for the earth. He reissued it to a newly redeemed people. Uh, Because of the atoning consequences of the cross, writes Scott J. Haffman, God is finally fulfilling his mission of revealing his glory through recreating a people who will exercise dominion in his name by keeping his commandments. Whereas humanity failed in the garden and Israel uh, fell in the wilderness, the church under the sovereignty of Christ, who is the ruler of kings on earth, will fill the world with the glory of God as a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Uh, This is our calling as God's people, washed in the Lord's blood. We are his dominion people, our Lord's new humanity. This is, to put it bluntly, the goal of the gospel. Um, So I thought those were helpful summary statements of, Mm -hmm. of that perspective. Well, with that perspective in in our minds, um, how would you define two kingdom theology, and 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 how would how do these two ideas contrast with one another? So <clears throat> here's where the answer gets a little long. <laughs> um, in short, uh, two kingdom theology is is really. Uh, could maybe be better described or, or another way to emphasize it is uh, the two ages theology or the two ages doctrine. And the idea there is that um, Adam in the garden was working to fulfill God's command to fill the earth and subdue it. Um, but he was doing so as a means to an end. That cultural mandate, that dominion mandate that Adam was given was uh, a test as part of what's called the covenant of works. And Adam owed God that obedience simply by being created in his image. But uh, God condescended and created a, a covenant of works with Adam where he offered to reward Adam for the obedience that he was already due. Uh, and he offered to reward Adam with eternal life, uh, also known as entering God's rest, um, if he had perfectly obeyed the law and fulfilled this this dominion mandate. Um, so that was Adam's work in this age, and he was obeying God, fulfilling this dominion mandate in order to enter into the age to come. Uh, so the age to come was something that was held out before Adam as something that he could attain. And, and essentially what that means is that his nature would be transformed where he could no longer sin. Uh, he would be sinless forever with no possibility of ever falling. And so that was that was the reward of eternal life, uh, God's rest, the age to come. And he was created to, if he had fulfilled that, he would be a ruler and uh, judge in, in the age to come. So that was what was held before Adam. And because of his fall, uh, because of his sin, he fell, and he forever lost that opportunity to earn that reward. Rather than uh, immediately coming in and administering justice and condemnation and the curse based on that broken covenant of works. Uh, God mercifully withheld that judgment. And so we enter then into a period on the earth where uh, this judgment is paused or withheld such that uh, life continues on this earth. This dominion mandate 
continues on this earth, but without the possibility of um, entering into the age to come through these labors. So it becomes kind of a, a temporary and provisional task, and it becomes a backdrop for the unfolding of redemption in Christ. And Christ is the one who comes and uh, fulfills the law where Adam failed. He's the one that earns um, uh, the status as king and ruler and judge of the age to come. And he earns that for his people. And he shares that uh, with his people through the covenant of grace, uh, union with Christ, giving them regeneration, the spirit, faith, justification, sanctification, and eventually glorification. And uh, we receive some of those benefits now and some when our bodies will be resurrected. So that's known as, as the already not yet tension uh, between this age and the age to come. So in, an, in a nutshell, that's what two kingdoms doctrine is getting at, is this distinction between the two ages. Um, and that has ramifications for how we live our life, uh, how we live our life here in this age as we are partaking already of the age to come. So before we get into that a little bit further, um, feel free to ask any questions you have at that point, but I wanted to get into a little bit of the history of the term two covenant theology as well. At some yeah, point. What, let's go ahead and get into that terminology. Great. So this is where things can get a little bit confusing. Um, so down through history, you have a variety of different two kingdoms-ish ideas, uh, but they don't all mean the same thing. So, um, and I definitely need to qualify every, everything I'm saying in this podcast that uh, I still have a lot of studying, a lot of reading to do. There's just a tremendous amount of literature out there on this topic, and I have much to learn. So take my words for whatever they're worth and uh, go out and do your own reading. But uh, one, one of the early figures that kind of stands out in this is, is Augustine. Uh, he developed the doctrine of what's called the city of God and the city of man. And he used that to kind of explain um, how uh, the kingdom of, of Christ could stand, the kingdom of God could stand, the city of God could continue uh, un unadulterated, unharmed, even though Rome fell. And so he developed this distinction between the city of God, which is believers, and the city of man, which is unbelievers. So this is uh, an eternal or eschatological distinction there. Um, and it's not quite the same thing as two-kingdom theology, but it is very related. And then later on, you have subsequent development, and this is where I need to do a little more studying, but you do, at some point in the medieval period, you develop uh, this, this two, idea of a twofold government of man, which is uh, the inward man and his conscience and, and the, his outward life in this world interacting with others. And uh, this is interesting because it actually relates to the early reformational two-kingdom or, or twofold government of man idea, which is sometimes confused with, with later developments. So um, the spiritual kingdom or spiritual government refers to our inward conscience before God. And then the temporal kingdom or temporal government is everything outward and external to an individual. So that would include you know, all your interactions with other people. It would include the institutional or visible church as well as uh, the state or civil government. So during medieval periods, the Pope had authority over both. Uh, with the Reformation, we get the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which freed our conscience, freed our, our, the spiritual government of man from the Pope's authority because our conscience was free before God because of justification by faith alone. The Pope could no longer uh, save or condemn a man, pronounce them saved or or unsaved, he had no authority or control over that. So there was a, uh, a liberty of conscience in the spiritual government of man before God. And so this was really the, the idea that Luther picked up on and, and developed. Um, our conscience is free before God, but Luther still kind of held this inward outward distinction. And so he would say, though our conscience is free before God, 
because of justification by faith alone, uh, how we interact with each other includes how we interact as the church and the visible church. And he would say all of that is under the authority of the civil ruler. So for Luther, this twofold government of man is not the same thing as the distinction between church and state that we have today. Uh, it, it was a little bit different than that. It was inward and outward. So at the end of the day, he gave uh, the civil ruler authority over the government of the church, um, uh, the discipline of the church, the uh, worship of the church, all of those things he gave into the hands of, of the prince. Uh, Calvin comes along and he basically is operating from the same idea, this inward-outward distinction. Um, but because of some problems he ran into, actually, just as an example of that, in Geneva, the, uh, the ruling elders in the church were made up of members of the, uh, I forget what they called them, basically the city council. Uh, they were representatives of the state there, of the city, and they were the ruling elders, and they helped exercise the discipline within the church. Um, but Calvin began to run into some trouble and some issues with, with discipline in the church. And so, though he retained that inward, outward distinction, that, that was, if you read carefully in his institutes, that's really actually what he's talking about. Some people um, get confused and think he's talking about church and state, where he talks about the spiritual government of man, and, or the spiritual, I don't think he uses the word kingdom. Of course, we have a translation, but... Um, he is talking about this inward versus outward, and he does place the visible church in, in the outward temporal realm. Um, but he begins to run into disagreements and, and troubles with exercising church discipline. And so he begins to articulate less of a subordination with the ruler and more of a coordination. So the ministers in the visible church are, are coordinate or side by side with, uh, with a civil ruler or a prince. Um, in, in governing temporal affairs. But Calvin would still place the visible church within that uh, external temporal kingdom. Um, and I can provide a link that goes in a little more detail on this. It's a little hard to wrap your head around, possibly, if you haven't heard it before. But uh, I can certainly provide some, some literature, do some more reading. It was took a little bit to, to get my head around it, but rereading Calvin, it definitely does make sense that that's what he's getting at. Uh, moving on to the, the 17th century, when we get to Westminster, this, this issue of church discipline takes on greater emphasis uh, over there. And it's, you know, start, people start arguing about a third mark of the church, uh, not just two marks of, of, uh, of the true church, but, but three marks, including church discipline. And that's really what the problem that they faced in the Church of England uh, was that people who... Uh, had no business being in the church, were still part of the Church of England. Uh, and they also get into issues with, with the king and queens of, uh, particularly the queen of England, um, taking control over the worship of the church. And uh, they have what's called a, the vestments controversy, where she basically picked out the outfits that they have to wear, uh, and they got into a fight about that. So um, you, the conflicts here between the civil ruler and the ministers of the church becomes more and more heated in, in England. And so some of Calvin's changes there where he started to coordinate those powers in England, you get the rise of what's called uh, de jure divino Presbyterians or, or divine right Presbyterianism. And that's the idea that God has immediately instituted the visible church and its ministers. And he doesn't institute it through, mediated through the civil ruler. Um, so God has, has established this completely outside of the civil ruler's authority immediately. And so that is known as divine right Presbyterianism. And in doing this, in, in, in arguing this, they began to shift the, the concept of this inward-outward, you know, spiritual kingdom is identified with the inward conscience. They then shifted and identify the spiritual kingdom with the institutional church. So it's both inward and outward. It's, it's spiritual issues, but it, uh, ultimately it's our conscience before God. 
but it is also uh, the visible church, which is the manifestation of the spiritual kingdom here on earth. And the temporal kingdom is under the domain of uh, the, the rule of civil authority, civil magistrate, as they called it. And that is distinct and separate from the spiritual kingdom, the, the church of Christ. Um, although at that time they still believed the two would be coordinated so that the civil ruler should um, protect, defend, as well as enforce the rulings of the visible church. Uh, but they did make the move to distinguish them. So we start to see something a little more like the two kingdom theology that we are used to, the, the church and state distinction. So the, you still had the, the Commonwealth of England. So you have the general population, um, and then you have both kingdoms within that Commonwealth. So you, you have an established religion, which is the visible church. That includes everybody in that Commonwealth. And then you have the, the temporal kingdom ruled by the civil authorities, and they're supposed to work hand in hand is the theory. Um, but within that same time period, you have uh, what's, what's known as the dissenters or the separatists. And those are the ones who basically the, uh, the congregationalists, uh, some who completely separated from the church of England and, and would not have any association with it. Others who, um, separated in the sense that they established congregational meetings, congregational groups, and they didn't necessarily cut off all ties with the church of England, but you have both of these, uh, groups breaking away from, uh, the Church of England in the sense that they denied the idea that the entire country, everybody in the entire country belonged to the Church of Christ, belonged to the church. And long story short, what that develops into is the rejection of the idea that the civil ruler has authority to establish the true religion on everybody and impose uh, a true religion on everybody. So the particular Baptists are an example of this congregational disestablishmentarian uh, people who rejected that concept, but they did retain this identification with the, uh, the spiritual kingdom, with the, the visible church. Uh, well, the, the invisible and visible church, with, with the church, I should say. The visible kingdom is identified with the church. Um, this modified their understanding of the authority of the civil ruler where they emphasized instead of the duty of the civil magistrate to enforce the true religion, rather it was the duty of the magistrate to allow liberty of conscience for everybody to um, have genuine faith, a uh, genuine response to the gospel through liberty of conscience. Uh, so Roger Williams was a very important early figure in this, he wrote, um, letters to the um, uh, to the rulers of, of England at the time during the Westminster Assembly. Uh, he understood that they would be debating this issue and he wrote lengthy replies and then and then he got into a lengthy back and forth with uh, John Cotton over in New England about it as well. But, but his writings really um, uh, raised the issue and kind of became the foundation of arguments for liberty of conscience. He was the most vocal and the most uh, astute arguing from a biblical perspective. Um, so long story short, you get to somebody like Benjamin Keach at the end of the 17th century, who says um, in a sermon on the wheat and the tares, which was a real foundational text in this whole argument, uh, he says only for murder, treason, felony, etc., ought persons to be delivered up to the civil magistrate to suffer corporal punishment. Not such who are only guilty of diverse sorts of errors and matters of faith or such who in many ways are immoral in their lives. Uh, this shows the persecution upon the account of religion is utterly unlawful. Though men may hold grand errors, yet no magistrates have any power to persecute them, much less in the highest degree so as to put them to death. So that's, that's kind of the trajectory as I've seen it so far in my in my limited studies, um, this this development from justification by faith alone into the separation of of church and state, with uh, the church being immediately established by God, independent of any civil ruler. Uh, the American 
Presbyterians eventually caught up with the Baptists and you know, a century later in 1788, they modified the Westminster Confession to allow for uh, the non-establishment of, uh, well, I should say, yeah, I'll have to double check. I can't remember exactly how they phrase it, but essentially the liberty of, um, denominational liberty at the very least. Uh, I think it actually goes so far as to say religious liberty. I can't remember if it's, sorry, I'm wrestling with my mind. I can't remember if they allow total religious freedom in that or if it's just denominational freedom within Christian groups. Um, but Lee Irons has a really helpful analysis of that revision. Uh, if anybody's interested, I highly recommend reading that. He goes through and, and notates every specific change that uh, was made there. And it's pretty extensive. It's in the catechisms. It's in the scripture proofs for different parts of the confession. It's, it's pretty detailed and interesting. There. Um, so that gets us to something much more familiar with where we are today, where you have this separation between church and state, where because God has immediately instituted the church and given it uh, the authority to govern itself, that means that the authority of any civil ruler is necessarily limited. And he doesn't have authority over the church, so therefore his authority is necessarily more limited. And um, the, the American Revolution at the time was actually referred to in England as the Presbyterian War because they were carrying a lot of, a lot of it was led by Presbyterians um, ideologically, but also because it was the Presbyterians who led the English Civil War a hundred years earlier. And the American uh, colonists were simply carrying on the same mindset, the idea that the authority of the, of the ruler is limited, and if he oversteps that authority, um, he may be overthrown. Uh, that get, the whole topic of revolution raises another interesting question we could do a top, uh, podcast on another time, but um, it is interesting that the American Revolution was known as the Presbyterian War for that reason. Uh, so you have, once you get to America, from, from my perspective, there's uh, a little bit of a relaxing in the, uh, in the need to develop a biblical political philosophy, a biblical understanding of culture and, and the civil ruler. Uh, because uh, the Enlightenment came around and kind of everybody just agreed that religious liberty was a good idea. And so, and it was. Um, and so we developed that in America and we had this great experiment. But because of that, there wasn't this pressing threat as there was in centuries past to really hammer out in very fine detail what the, what the Bible requires. Uh, and so, in my opinion, we've kind of rested on that for a long time and haven't we haven't fully worked out the details that that move from 16th, 17th century reformational uh, magisterial reformation to religious liberty on, on biblical grounds. It was certainly there. Uh, Roger Williams was certainly arguing on biblical grounds as well as other people, but in, they tended to stop short and say, well, he, he, they don't have authority to establish religion to determine religious matters but they didn't necessarily carry that on into what does he have authority to do. Uh, that's kind of a side note there. But um, Abraham Kuyper comes along. He's at the uh, the end of the 19th century, I believe, somewhere in that time frame. And he's coming from the, the continental uh, Dutch Reformed tradition. And he was a, a pastor, but he was also a statesman. He became prime minister uh, over there as well. And he was just a tremendous thinker. And so he began to think somewhat anew on this issue and try to develop a, a more systematic answer as to how we live. And he revised the, I think it's the Belgic Confession, uh, also making it, um, now I, again, I have to go check the, re the wording. I want to be careful here, but essentially disestablishmentarian. Um, or at the very least, uh, remove the authority to enforce, you know, true worship of God, things like that, uh, allow more liberty of conscience. Um, so he certainly moved in that direction. And, and he developed a, a whole doctrine based on the Noahic covenant, that uh, it is, is this Noahic covenant that was made to preserve 
this whole world until Christ returns for both believers and unbelievers to live in together. And so he sought to develop a political philosophy based on the Noahic covenant, uh, where, where unbelievers and believers work together. Um, and this is an area where I need to, to do more reading, but he uh, developed this, this idea of common grace, which at least in subsequent uh, theologians who followed Kuiper developed it into the idea kind of merging into the, the one kingdom theology that we talked about when we opened that, that actually because of common grace, unbelievers are contributing to the development of the kingdom of Christ, working together with unbelievers to build this, this one kingdom that was the goal of creation such that what they do in this life will continue to have significance once Christ returns in the eternal state and in this world. So, that's kind of a little bit where that comes from. Again, I have a lot more reading to do there. Um, jumping back to America, as I said, we, we kind of stopped trying to develop a, a fully biblical understanding of this issue to the point where you get to uh, this interesting statement in the PCA Book of Church Order uh, which was from, I think, when the PCA was formed in maybe 1973, if I remember right. Uh, they had this statement in, yeah, they had this statement in uh, chapter 3, paragraph 4, I think it is. It says, the power of the church is exclusively spiritual. That of the state includes the exercise of force. The constitution of the church derives from divine revelation. The constitution of the state must be determined by human reason and the course of providential events. So after a couple hundred years, we get to the point where at least the Presbyterian church believes that the Bible does not determine any issues of the state. That's in the realm of human reason and, and general providence. Um, scripture, special revelation is just for the church. So you, you, you get this um, epistemological split, this dual ethic type of mindset where the two have become separated. Um, in my opinion, at least some contributing factor to that is their covenant theology makes it extremely difficult for them to avoid the errors of the past if they do look to scripture. Uh, but from that standpoint, that's right around the same time that Greg Bonson wrote his thesis on theonomy, called Theonomy and Christian Ethics, where he was very strongly reacting against that idea and saying that uh, there's no valid philosophical basis for distinguishing those two. Whatever is revealed in general revelation is also revealed with greater clarity in Scripture. And he would argue that uh, because of the, the noetic effects of sin, we can't look to general revelation alone. We need, uh, we need to look to scripture. And so he developed what's known as theonomy. And that's the idea that all modern nations today are obligated to enforce Mosaic law. So um, certain minor differences have, have changed between our state and our, our condition and Israel's, but he would argue that whoever was put to death in Israel should be put to death still today. So that launched, you know, several centuries of controversy that's that's still going on today, and uh, all of that to get to where we are today and understand where Van, David Van Drunen is coming from, which is where who most people identify with two kingdom theology today. Um, so David Van Drunen comes around. Um, roughly 10, 15 years ago, started started writing on this, I believe. And uh, he was reacting to neo-Calvinism, but also theonomy. And so he picked up on some of, some of Kuiper's insights where the covenant of grace governs the kingdom of Christ. The Noahic covenant governs this common kingdom. And then he also picked up on the, some of the American tradition there where there's a, a epistemological or, or dualistic ethic 
ethical split there where the common kingdom is informed and regulated by natural law, whereas the kingdom of Christ is governed or regulated and formed by special revelation. And so that's sort of where we are today. Um, does any of that make sense so far? Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, maybe a question of clarification or to, to delve a little bit deeper in one of the things you brought up because you, you covered a lot of years and a lot of decades in a fairly short period of time. Back to theonomy. Um, theonomy is fairly big today, um, at least in, in what I see and what I read and, and, and people I interact with. Can, can you flesh out a little bit more exactly what theonomy is and, and maybe give some of the various shades that someone's bound to encounter if they delve into these subjects? Yes. Um, it can be difficult because it can, it can at times be difficult to find a precise definition. Um, but from my reading, you'll find in, in Bonson and um, North and um, Brian Schwertley and a few others like that, it, it's the theonomy is the idea that if somebody was put to death in the old covenant by the civil magistrate, they should be put to death by civil magistrates today. Uh, they would argue that um, the judicial law of Moses has never been abrogated, has never been um, set aside. So it continues today, and in fact, it is part of the moral law. Uh, that's, that's the idea in a nutshell. As they tried to work that out, they found themselves disagreeing over the details quite a bit. Um, such that today you'll find people who still call themselves theonomists, but who more or less reject that entire idea. And so in, in some ways it's today, theonomy really just for some people just means the idea that scripture regulates, um, limits and informs and regulates and provides the authority for the civil magistrate to act today. So you do need to be careful and understand where the person's coming from that you're talking to, what exactly that they, they mean, what exactly they believe about theonomy. Um, personally, I don't consider those people theonomists, but they do. They, they use that definition. They say theonomy just means God's law. And so if, if you believe that scripture, God's law applies to civil magistrates today, then you're a theonomist. I don't think that's a helpful definition, but, but some people do use that. So, um, the, the modern movement really started with a guy named, uh, Rush Dooney and he was writing sixties, early seventies. And he really influenced, uh, a guy named Greg Bonson, uh, who, um, went to Westminster Theological Seminary, wrote this thesis paper called Theonomy and Christian Ethics, and Bonson was extremely sharp, very strong in logic and philosophy, and did, did a very good job of, of arguing his position. Uh, and that launched uh, many decades of excuse me, controversy. Um, Gary North is another name that uh, was around that time North wound up uh, basically funding the writings of Bonson and, and other theonomists. Uh, he made a lot of money in the in the 80s with uh, investing gold, and he was basically a self-sustaining publishing house, and so gave theonomy a, a big voice and um, you know kind of turned it into a movement. Um, but those would be some of the big bigger early figures, and then kind of splinters out from there into a lot of different organizations and individuals. Let's transition a little bit since this is the Covenant podcast and Austin would be upset if I didn't ask any question about Covenant theology. Um, 
how does one's understanding of covenant theology come to play in topics like this and in the nature of how the church relates to the the present age if you will sure so it's the covenant your understanding of covenant theology is extremely important for understanding how the kingdom of christ relates to life today um each of the ideas that I just laid out, each of them has, you know, is built upon a slightly different covenant theology. And a, a lot of people tend to put the cart before the horse and they start trying to figure out their view of, of culture um, and the role of the state and all of that without first developing a thorough understanding of covenant theology, at least what they believe about covenant theology. And I, I think it's definitely putting the cart before the horse. We need to understand what the Bible says about covenant theology. You need to have a firm conviction of that because it tremendously informs your, your view of culture. So the, the one kingdom theology that I mentioned when I started, um, the idea that the kingdom of God is you know placing us, restoring us back to where Adam was and enabling us to fulfill fulfill his task, and I quoted Andrew Sandlin there, um, that idea is very much rooted in a rejection of the covenant of works. Uh, they argue strongly against uh, the idea that there was a covenant of works. And so their covenant theology very much informs that, that whole idea. Um, David Van Drunen has his book called Living in God's Two Kingdoms is a very helpful response to that, showing how a biblical understanding of of how the age to come was held out as a reward for Adam, how that affects our view of culture and, and how Christ came to, to earn the age to come. So and that is what we inherit through faith in Christ. That's what redemption is. We're, we're not being put back in the same situation as Adam. Rather, we continue in the same situation Noah was in, which is different from the situation Adam was in. And uh, we look forward to the day when we will fully experience uh, the age to come that, that Christ has earned for us. So those two different views of what was going on in the garden result in two very different understandings of culture and how the kingdom of God relates to it and how the Christian life relates to it. Um, and then again, the you know the 17th century particular Baptists versus the 17th century Presbyterians, you have two different covenant theologies, both affirm the covenant of works, covenant of grace, but Westminster saw every post-fall covenant as the covenant of grace. So the old and the new are really one and the same covenant. So then the civil ruler is informed by, by Israel's laws, similar to theonomy, not exactly the same. Um, and then the, the particular Baptists rejected that and argued that uh, only the new covenant is the covenant of grace. The old covenant was not. And so you're freed from that example of Israel because you recognize those laws in Israel were really, uh, it was a typological covenant of works. And when people were put to death for breaking the law, it's because, uh, it's because of God's presence there, his typological presence dwelling in a land where sin could not be permitted. And they were put to death as, as a type and a shadow of the final judgment, not because Israel was just a, example of what all nations should follow, but because it has typological significance. So again, covenant theology informs that. Um, when the American Presbyterians came to America and revised the confession, they didn't change anything in the confession surrounding covenant theology, but the individual theologians within America did change their covenant theology. Um, I've got a post from um, some, some covenanters the, the original Westminster guys came over to America and they had a lot of conflicts with, with the new American Presbyterian idea. And there's a, a helpful essay by a guy named uh, William Finley, if I'm remembering correctly, but I've got a post you can link to where I go through and show how, how he went and largely adopted the particular Baptist view of the old covenant in order to argue against this covenanter and defend the idea of religious liberty. Uh, and you see the same thing in Charles Hodge when he has to argue against, um, he's ultimately arguing against Romanists, but also Episcopalians in America, the idea that uh, everybody in a given 
society is part of the church, the established church, when he argues against that, he again adopts a particular Baptist view, not only of the Mosaic Covenant, but actually of the Abrahamic as well. And he says that uh, uh, the covenant of grace is separate and distinct from the covenant of circumcision made with Abraham's offspring for the land of Canaan. He says you can't confuse those two. So covenant theology absolutely informs these things. When you get to theonomy, um, Craig Bonson's thesis advisor at Westminster was a man named Norman Shepard, who was eventually dismissed for teaching justification by faith and works. Uh, he held to, he strongly rejected the covenant of works. Um, he strongly rejected any objective law gospel distinction. And although Bonson was initially strong on those himself starting out, you can see progression in his writing where you get to the end and he is um, arguing that there's only one covenant that God made with his people and there's only one law. And that becomes central to his defense of, of theonomy, that God doesn't change, his covenant doesn't change, his law doesn't change, so we are still obligated to obey it today. So uh, that's a long answer that, yes, covenant theology is very related to it. Uh, the, the particular Baptist understanding that the new covenant alone is the covenant of grace, the new covenant alone uh, constitutes the kingdom of Christ, has significant impacts for our understanding of, of culture and two kingdoms and all of that. There's a, a great essay written by a particular Baptist in the uh, 18th century named Abraham Booth. It's called An Essay on the Kingdom of Christ. And that was exactly his, his point there. He was arguing against the established church in England. And it's a really, really great essay. Uh, actually, transcribed it and made it available for free online if anybody wants to read it. Uh, you can find it at 1689federalism.com in the additional resources section. So, yes, it's uh, covenant theology is very, very related to all of this. You had mentioned as you were talking about some theonomist as, as well as some others, a, a denial of the law and gospel distinction. Could you flesh out what exactly that is and what, what that phrase means or what is the law and the gospel and how are they distinct and how do they relate to each other? Sure, it's, it's a good question. We have to carefully define it. Um, as the Reformed tradition came to define it, it is the um, distinction between two ways of earning eternal life, two ways of obtaining eternal life, I should say. Uh, one is through obedience to the law. This was offered to Adam in the garden. And the other is through the righteousness of Christ received through faith alone. So the law is the offering of eternal life to Adam and any who would perfectly obey. And the gospel is that Christ alone has fulfilled that demand and we receive his righteousness through faith alone. And that became, as, as, time, as the Reformation progressed, that became solidified in, in the covenant of works, covenant of grace distinction. Again, you were, you were discussing how there was a, a denial of the threefold division of the law um, amongst some theonomists, or rather a blending of the first two divisions. Can you flesh out what the threefold division of the law is? Sure. So uh, the threefold division is at root, it's, it's a twofold division. And the distinction is between uh, the moral law and what's known as positive law. So moral law is a reflection of God's nature that is inherently part of being created in the image of God. Uh, it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. And it is binding and true for all all image bearers, everybody created by God at all times, from the garden till Christ returns um, and beyond. It, it's, it is always true and always binding. Positive law is law that God creates. Um, tech, we can use a technical phrase arbitrarily, right? Of his own free will, he uh, creates a law for a specific time and place, such as you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, that was a positive law. 
uh, baptism is another positive law. These are not true for all people at all times. They are laws that are given for a specific time. They can be um, annulled, abrogated, taken away as well at God's discretion. Uh, so the, as soon as the judicial and ceremonial laws have been understood as positive laws, right? These are laws that were given to Israel at a certain time in a certain place. And with the end of the old covenant, those positive laws, the judicial and ceremonial laws passed away. Um, the confessional position regarding the judicial law is that insofar as any of those judicial laws given to Israel were a reflection simply of moral law, an application of moral law, then their general equity continues to apply today. So, um, you know, executing murderers, for example, would continue today, whereas stoning people who break the Sabbath would not, uh, just, just as an example. Um, and there's a lot of debate as to how do we determine what exactly is general equity, and it gets fairly complicated, but I would argue we need to answer that biblically, look very hard biblically, and, and find out what the answer to that is. Um, theonomy does not hold that same division. They would argue that the judicial laws were a subset of the moral law rather than a subset of positive law. Um, and so they continue today because they are simply the application of moral law that is the same at all times. Um, and interestingly, you know, I mentioned that, that Bonson's argument was, you know, he had a fairly unique interpretation of, of Matthew 5 when Jesus says, not one jot or tittle of the law shall, pass, shall fall away until all is accomplished. Um, he argued that meant, you know, no law of the old covenant is done away with. We must continue to observe all of them. Uh, and when it comes to the ceremonial, he would, he actually preferred to call that restorative law. And interestingly, he did not say that those passed away. He said they continue, but the way that we observe them has changed. So now we observe those laws in Christ through faith in him rather than slaughtering an animal. But he, to try to make his thesis work, he said that those laws continue to be in force as well. So that, that uh, it's, it's a big, big problem there. It's so I've referred to Bonson's idea there. Theonomy's idea is both monocovenantal, one covenant, as well as mononomism, one law. Um, they, they have a very different understanding of, of the law and a rejection of moral positive. Um, and while I'm here, before we forget, um, if anybody's interested in that topic, I would actually recommend, uh, just in general with regards to theonomy and the, the typological elements of, of the Old Covenant law, um, there are a couple books actually written by a theonomist, uh, one of Gary North's, his uh, son-in-law, who was formerly president of American Vision, uh, named Joel McDermott. He's written a couple books called uh, The Bounds of Love, as well as um, trying to remember the title, Consuming Fire, the Holy of Holies. And if anybody's interested, I highly recommend that. Uh, you know, I have a few minor disagreements, but overall he does a really good job of showing exactly what I said, that those, those death penalties in Israel were part of the typological covenant of works where they were related to God's presence in the land and people who sinned were brought into God's presence and executed for it. And, uh, that ceases today since God does not dwell here on earth. So, um, that's a, a really great corrective to theonomy from somebody who came from within this, their own camp. Well, we're run low on time. Um, <laughs> Sure. <laughs> which is fine, which is fine. And we, we got a lot of good information here. But I'm sure um, what some people will be curious is, since we've been talking about two-kingdom theology and, and, and briefly kind of scratched the surface on cultural engagement and things like that, um, if you could give a as brief of answer as possible <laughs> as to what you believe— <laughs> 
is the best Christian approach per se to to politics. I, I know that you contribute to the website Reformed Libertarian, um, so I'm guessing you would think that's the best approach. But could you just as brief as possible? If we go over an hour, that's fine. Um, kind of flesh out that for us. Sure, sure. So I, I do want to make a qualification or, or clarification. Um, I think David Van Drunen has a lot of very helpful things to say, particularly regarding the, how covenant theology informs this discussion. His, his covenantal structure is, um, is, is mostly good. You know, I disagree with a few points, but the idea that the Noahic covenant of, of common preservation governs all things, and that's separate from the covenant of grace, um, as well as understanding the covenant of works, all of that's very important. But I strongly disagree with his his dual ethic, his insistence that uh, natural law informs the Noahic covenant and scripture informs the covenant of grace or the, the kingdom of Christ. Um, I, I don't think that's biblical. I think that it uh, ignores the noetic effects of sin. Um, he has addressed that, and I, I don't think he adequately understands um, the objection there because... Even Calvin said that uh, natural law is insufficient to rightly know how to how to govern affairs in this world. He said it was, um, we have a better idea of, of the second table than the first, but even in the second, our sin suppresses the accurate knowledge of natural law. So I disagree with him there, and I, I think we have to look to Scripture to answer that question. So in that regard, you know, I agree with Bonson. I agree with the theonomist that we need to look at Scripture to answer this question. But I think that as I've mentioned, I think that theonomists misinterpret the Bible. I think their covenant theology is wrong, and it leads them astray. So um, the view that I've arrived at can, uh, is known as Reformed Libertarian. Um, I hold that with an open hand. You know, I am very willing to give that up if I can be shown that it's unbiblical or there's a more biblical way. Um, but in my studies, it is what I see as the most biblical. Um, so to summarize it, uh, the reformed part of that refers to holding to the system, uh, reform system of theology, you know, Calvinism, as well as the as covenant theology rooted in the covenant of work, covenant of grace. Uh, the libertarian part of it specifically refers to the legal theory that the initiation of aggression or the threat to initiate aggression against the property of another human being is a crime. So this is commonly known as the non-aggression non-aggression principle. Um, for the libertarian, that which is illegal is determined by private property ownership, and therefore not all things that may be categorized as immoral, unethical, sinful, are necessarily criminal. So it does not refer to a whole philosophy of life. Um, it does not refer to the libertari libertarian party at all. Um, that's that's not representative of the view at all. Uh, the Libertarian Party is really not libertarian at all. You can find some uh, a lot of essays that uh, particularly C.J. Engel has written on reformlibertarian.com. And then he also has uh, is editor of a magazine called Bastion Magazine, if people want to read, more, read up more on that. Um, but in a nutshell, why I believe that is biblical is because um, a, a lot of modern American Christians, Reformed Christians, I, I think they have some some baggage left over from magisterial Reformation. And like I said, it, we kind of stopped at the American Revolution and didn't keep developing that, that biblical theology of the state. Um, and so the magisterial idea was that the, uh, the magistrate was a father who was there to... Um, make people more outwardly moral, uh, essentially to spank them and discipline them to obey the Ten Commandments as a father. Uh, and you come over to America, and that same basic idea is retained, sort of. You just take out the first four commandments. But still the magistrate's there to make people moral, keep them in line, and, uh, and make them conform to at least six of the Ten Commandments. Um, I don't think that idea is adequately established in Scripture. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Um, instead, I think that you have, um, I think that the Sixth Commandment establishes a 
regulative principle of violence, similar to how the second commandment establishes a regulative principle of worship. Uh, the sixth commandment says that any unjustified use of violence is murder. And so we need to look to scripture to find out what is a justified use of violence. So I would look to the Noahic covenant. Uh, Genesis 9, 6 says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Right, that is the establishment of the principle called lex talionis, which is eye for an eye. And you see that elaborated in some of the uh, Mosaic laws as well regarding theft and, and physical injury. And so uh, I think that is to govern our understanding and, and that's what li Reformed Libertarianism is built upon. The idea that the use of force, force is only justified in self-defense and the administration of a retributive justice very narrowly limited by the principle of an eye for an eye. Um, so that's, sorry, that's probably much longer than what you asked for, but, uh, there it is. No, no, no. I, I appreciate that. We have been discussing the kingdom of God and, and particularly two kingdom theology and one kingdom theology with Brandon Adams. Um, the last question before we end, you've mentioned several resources and, and we'll try and link to as many of them as we can. What what are some other resources that you would suggest when when beginning to engage this subject, really just to get a healthy overview of it and then begin to go deeper? Sure. So I'm I, I tend to be the uh get into the weeds quite a bit, so some of these might not be the best introduction, but maybe they are. I don't know. Uh I'd go to uh, reformlibertarian.com is one resource. You know, we're trying to make that more accessible. We've got a lot of content on there, trying to make it easier to navigate, but uh, haven't had a lot of time to do it. But uh, if you go there up at the top, there's a link. Um, there should be a link to the directory listing where you can see all the posts listed by category. So a lot of mine are down towards the bottom under theology. Um, that's one resource. Um, for people who are already politically minded, I mentioned Bastion Magazine. Uh, the editor is a a 1689 Baptist, and you're going to get a, a conservative libertarian perspective on on uh, cultural and, and political issues. Um, so check that out. I think it's bastionmagazine.com. Um, I also mentioned um, Abraham Booth, an essay on the kingdom of Christ. You can find that for free at uh, 1689federalism.com slash resources. And I think you might be able to get it on Kindle and Amazon as well. I can't remember. Um, be careful if you try to order a hardback of that. It's printed and, and published together with an essay from somebody else who is uh, not Abraham Booth, and it's an argument against the covenant of works. <laughs> so you might get a little confused there. Uh, he did not write that. Um, I would also recommend Jonathan Lehman's book, The Political Church. Uh, Jonathan Lehman is uh, a Baptist elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, helps run the Nine Marks Ministries. And um, I, I really do think that Baptists need to um, stop looking to Presbyterian and Baptists for all of these answers. Um, they have a lot of insight, a lot we can necessary, we can definitely learn from, but they're also going to have a slightly different perspective to these things because of their covenant theology and where they're coming from we are necessarily going to have a slightly different perspective. And so I think that Jonathan Lehman's book winds up saying a lot of similar things as Van Drunen, but without some of the things that I disagree with. So I actually recommend that as a good place to start uh, his book, The Political Church. Um, there's a lecture you can find online from uh, somebody named Lee Irons. He has a helpful lecture called Understanding Meredith Klein, and it just kind of lays out this covenantal structure that I've been talking about um, that, uh, that I mostly agree with. It's very helpful in terms of Noahic Covenant and, and how that relates today. Um, from a, a kind of an overall perspective of how Scripture is to apply to all of life, I would recommend Gordon Clark's book, A Christian View of Men and Things. Um, wouldn't necessarily agree with every single particular 
interpretation or idea he offers there, but the overall approach is, is extremely helpful. Um, so, and, and David Van Drunen's uh, Living in God's Two Kingdoms, at least the first few chapters, um, I'd have some more nuanced disagreement with some of the other things in terms of his practical, you know, his outworking, how he thinks that applies to our lives, like I mentioned with the, with the natural law stuff, I'd have some disagreement there. But um, those are some resources I'd point to. Well, thank you, Brandon, for coming on to the Covenant Theology and, and broaching such a, a deep and, and complicated subject and, and kind of helping us wade in the waters of it a little bit. Well, I hope it was helpful. I hope it wasn't too scattered. Uh, there's There's just a lot there. There's a lot to work out. And uh, it's a very complicated topic and very relevant. And it's something that we all have to, we turn on the TV and we're faced with this question, you know, how are we to interpret what's going on and how it relates to my life as a Christian? And so it's not something we can escape. Um, it's something we need some, some clear answers on. And I think there's some more work to do there. Yeah, and I, I think from this overall discussion, at least one application is that we should have a little bit of humility when when broaching this subject because there is a vast amount of resources to engage and think through before we, we come to final decisions on any of it. Absolutely, yeah. And I would just say let people really have a conversation with people, understand where they're coming from. Um, try not to get into the, uh, the idea of camps warring with each other and, and assume what another person's thinking because of a label they have or whatever. But uh, as you said, be humble and, and listen to each other. Yes. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, accessible, and now accredited. You can learn more about them at cbtseminary.org. Again, that is cbtseminary.org. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. If you've enjoyed this resource or you simply like the Covenant Podcast, head on over to our iTunes page, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are also available via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and Podbean. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.